Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout out to the Patreon members. Tavia S., Victoria Dyer, Tina Mee, Nancy Wallace, Mana Ash, Inner Scare Wifey, Felicia Scott, Cindy Cleveland, House of Jen, and the rest will be right here on the screen. Thank you all so much for joining the new membership. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes right here on YouTube or become a Patreon member or would like to support me as a content creator, you can buy me a coffee. All of that information can be found in the description below. Just a quick reminder, if you would like to send in your personal stories, I am currently taking subscriber or listener stories so that I can make an actual video of just your personal stories. If you would like to send in your story, please send that to Phoenix. Fire narrations at gmail.com. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 5. Because these cases are actually long in this video, I will play an ad right after this intro, and then I'll play an ad before I read the first case. That way we can go ahead and get the ads out of the way. After that, there will be no more ads within this video. Disclaimer. Some of these cases may include information that some find disturbing. Heavy listening discretion is advised. In December 1971, the mysterious deaths of two teenagers and the disappearance of another rocked the small town of Brownstown, Indiana. After a tragic fire that destroyed the makeshift cabin they were camping in, only two sets of remains were found. What happened to the third teen remains unknown. On Friday, December 17, 1971, 19 year old Jerry Autry spent the evening cruising around his small hometown of Brownstown, Indiana, in his Ford Thunderbird convertible with his longtime girlfriend. A senior at Brownstown Central High, Jerry was a star football player and considered very popular and well liked amongst his peers. The couple meandered around town looking for something to do before stopping by a house party thrown by a friend of Jerry's. In attendance at the party were 17-year-old Stanley, Stan Robinson, and 16-year-old Michael Mike Sewell, Jerry's best friends. At approximately midnight, Jerry left the party to take his girlfriend home, agreeing to meet up with Stan and Mike later. After dropping his girlfriend off, Jerry went to Stan's parents' home, a large rural farm located just outside of Brownstown. Once there, he found Stan, Mike, and two other teenagers hanging out in a makeshift cabin the boys had constructed together two months prior. The cabin, which measured approximately 9 by 15 feet, was a frequent hangout spot for the boys, who spent as much as two nights a week camping out inside. It was constructed of old creosote-coated railroad ties and sheet metal, which was used for the roof and ceiling. It had one entrance and no working windows. There was one unfinished window on hinges, but it was secured shut. Inside was a couch, rug, two cots, and a wood-burning stove used for heating the cabin. 
The small structure was located roughly a quarter mile from the Robinson family home in a sparsely wooded area at the edge of an open farmland. During this time, Stan's sister, Gerda, had just gotten married and her reception party was underway at the American Legion building. Hoping to score some snacks and drinks from the party, the group loaded into Stan's Ford Mustang and headed into town. Gerda provided the boys with some drinks and leftover food, and around 2.30 a.m., they headed back to the cabin. Once back at the Robinson farm, Jerry realized he did not have his contact lens case. He and Mike got in Jerry's car and went to his home in nearby Ewing, Indiana, to retrieve it. According to Jerry's mom, Jerry waited in the car and Mike ran inside. Afterwards, they once again returned to the cabin. They parked Jerry's car with the headlights facing the entrance to the cabin, something they usually did as the cabin did not have any outside sources of light. A short time later, Mike left with the two other friends while Jerry and Stan remained behind at the cabin. Around 2.45 a.m., they returned. One of the teens helped Mike carry firewood before leaving him behind to spend the night with Stan and Jerry. The next morning, around 8.30 a.m., Gerda went to retrieve her brother and his friends from the cabin, all of whom had promised to help her clean up after the party. To her shock, Gerda found a smoldering pile of ash and metal where the structure once stood. She quickly informed her family and they called authorities. When police first arrived on the scene, it appeared obvious what had happened. In the 12-degree weather that evening, Stan, Mike, and Jerry had overheated the wood-burning stove and it had caught fire while they were asleep. The boys kept a Coleman lantern in the cabin, as well as a can of gasoline. Either could have helped fuel the fire that incinerated the cabin. However, after two days of carefully sifting through the remains of the structure, investigators were faced with a bizarre dilemma. There were only enough bones for two bodies. One set of bones were found in a metal cot in the cabin along with a lighter. The second set of bones were found near where the second cot sat, opposite of the first. Two class rings were also found inside the cabin, one in a small crevice near the bed and the other near the second bed. The ring found in the crevice of the cabin had been the least damaged and was determined to undoubtedly belong to Jerry. However, multiple witnesses, including his girlfriend, claimed Jerry was not wearing his ring on the night of the fire. The second ring, which had suffered a significantly greater amount of damage, was believed to belong to Stan. It was inspected closely by the local jeweler, but he could not say with confidence the ring belonged to him, only that it was similar to the one Stan owned. The cabin had burned with such intensity, the boy's skulls and teeth had been mostly cremated. However, a leg bone found on one bed was determined to be Jerry's given the substantial height difference. Both Stan and Mike were 5 foot 8, but Jerry was over 6 foot tall. Although the boy's remains were mostly incinerated in the fire, the county coroner, as well as a state pathologist that was called in later, were extremely adamant that there was no possibility a third person's remains were at the scene. Someone was missing, 
and they believed that someone was Mike. Mike was immediately listed as a missing person, believing he may have wandered, injured into the woods or into nearby White River, a huge search effort ensued. However, no sign of the missing teen was found. What police did find, however, was a partially burnt comforter at the edge of the field, along with a pack of cigarettes and fresh cigarette butts. Several other unusual clues were found at the scene as well. Jerry's car had been moved from its normal parking spot. It was found on the opposite side of the cabin, and while it had no damage from the smoke or fire, the oil pan was broken in two, as though it had been driven over rough terrain. According to the boys who had taken Mike back to the cabin and the last ones to leave for the evening, the car was still in its usual spot, facing the door to the cabin at that time. It was also noted Jerry's keys were found in the ignition in the on position, and his seat had been adjusted. Jerry was over six feet tall, and the driver's seat had been moved nearly all the way forward. Rumors of drug use, arson, and murder erupted in the small town hindering the investigation. Several people claimed that Mike was getting into the LSD scene and had made a known dealer mad. Others reported seeing the boys with large quantities of marijuana that evening. Some even said Stan was using heroin. Conflicting reports came from witnesses at the party. Locals expressed outrage that the identity of the bones were being solely based on the jewelry found at the scene. Others openly voiced their opinion that Mike was a murderer. These rumors instigated discord between the families of the boys as well, some of them taking to the newspapers to voice their opinions. However, in the end, they all ultimately agreed on one thing. They wanted answers as to what really happened that night. Unfortunately, those answers never came. For years after the fire, numerous people reported seeing Mike in towns across Indiana. However, those sightings were never confirmed. All three families continued to push for a grand jury investigation, but with no concrete evidence of foul play, their continued requests were denied. Jerry and Stan were laid to rest on the same day, in the same cemetery. Mike's family attempted to have him declared legally dead. However, without proof of death, their request was denied. Mike has never been found, and the details of the deaths of Jerry Autry and Stan Robinson remain a mystery. Felix Vale, the pedophile serial killer, caught after 54 years. Disclaimer, this write-up borrows extensively from Gone, a 35,500-word book about the life and crimes of Felix Vale. It contains information that you simply cannot find anywhere else. About 80% of this write-up uses its information. Mary Horton Born on the 16th of February, 1940, to Floyd and Lily Horton, Mary was popular, beautiful, and well-liked. She became homecoming queen at Eunice High School and wrote for the school newspaper. After graduating, 
she began attending McNeese State University, where she was so popular that all five sororities invited her to join. She eventually chose Chai Omega. A Fateful Encounter In 1960, she began dating William Felix Bale Sr., who goes by Felix. He was six foot tall, slender, and in the words of another sorority girl, quote, looked like he'd been touched by heaven, end quote. In her diaries and messages to friends, Mary spoke of being happy and excited. However, not everything was sunshine and rainbows for the young couple. On June 20th, 1960, Mary confided in a friend, quote, I really do love Felix, but I don't think that I like him anymore. He really is sweet, but we don't see eye to eye on things, end quote. She requested that a friend set her up on a date with another man in the hopes that Felix would leave her. In response to this date, he came to Mary saying he suffered from a disease. She asked what disease he had. He meant Mary. The two had a conversation that Mary described as Felix doing all the talking and her just listening. He told her that he had changed and she said that she had too. The two began dating again, but Mary continued to see other people. She attended a house party with Kelly McFarlane, who afterwards heard that Vale was so angry he wanted to kill him. McFarlane tracked him down, eventually meeting him in the dark woods. The two exchanged no blows, and they went their separate ways. After this incident, Mary described herself as miserable and Felix as jealous, although she reiterated her love for him. There was reportedly an incident at a pool party where Felix, quote, walked up to Mary and just slapped the heck out of her, end quote, according to Mary's high school boyfriend, Leonard Matt. Despite everything, Mary continued to defend him, calling him a, quote, wonderful person, end quote. The Marriage On July 1st, 1961, in Eunice, Louisiana, Mary Horton and Felix Bale got married. In the fall of that year, Mary began her job as a second grade teacher at Moss Bluff Elementary School. That December, she found out she was pregnant. Another teacher, Murdis McQuiltney, said Felix didn't want a child. Her sister-in-law, Sue Jordan, told Mary the only reason Bale believed she wanted to get married was to have a baby, and not because of him. Mary blamed herself, saying, quote, I can see, looking back, from many things I said, how they could have been misunderstood, end quote. Mary insisted that the couple were happy, but did not comment on how unattractive she felt while pregnant, a sentiment that Felix shared. On their anniversary, Mary gave birth to William Felix Bell Jr., who they called Bill. Within a month, Mary suspected that she may be pregnant again. At this time, strange things began to happen in the couple's apartment. One morning, the couple awoke to find their front door had been removed from its hinges. Another time, they found the front door of their apartment wide open. Nothing was stolen. Mary began receiving threatening calls. The couple concluded that whoever was calling must be watching them 
because the caller only ever did it when Felix wasn't home. Mary spoke with her mother about divorcing Felix. Her mother, a devout Catholic, urged her daughter to stay and work things out. It would be a fatal mistake. Mary's death. On October 28, 1962, at 7.30 p.m., Felix Bell drove up to Shell Beach saying that his wife had fallen in the water of the Calcasieu River while they were running trot lines. It took two days to find her body, close to where Bell had said she disappeared. Her funeral was held on October 31st. Bell never paid a cent for it. On November 4th, deputies arrested Bell at work, hauling him to jail and questioning him. He refused to take a lie detector test. The coroner ruled Mary's death an accidental drowning, a sentiment not shared by the officers who found her body or the community at large. Days later, Bell was released without charge as the DA declined to prosecute. Months later, he picked up his son, Bill, from the Louisiana home of his late wife's aunt and headed for Mississippi. According to Bill, years later, Vale told him that he and Mary were out fishing, that a boat had come by and caused a big wave and knocked her out of the boat. Mary didn't know how to swim, had no life jacket, despite being afraid of water, and so immediately sank and drowned. He said he had almost died trying to rescue her. Robin Sinclair An 11 years age gap and a deadbeat dad. In 1967, Vale met a 17-year-old Robin Sinclair at a bus stop in San Diego. Vale would have been 28 at this time. Large age gaps will be a theme in this story. She was spending the summer there with her sister, and the two began dating. When summer break ended, she left without him, returning home to San Francisco. In October of 1968, while attending an Iron Butterflies concert, Vale appeared again. Sinclair took it as a sign that the two belonged together. He had his young son Bill, and the three bounced from place to place together. Sinclair would rather describe how Bill was poorly looked after, neglected, and that Vale would even give the young boy drugs. Bill would later recount his father giving him LSD as a child. While watching over another couple's home during the Christmas holidays, she learned she was pregnant and shared the news with Vale. He said, quote, Well, I don't think you're emotionally stable enough to handle the pregnancy, end quote. The next morning, Vale and his young son had vanished. A friend told Sinclair that he went back to Mississippi, that it was time for his son to go to school, and that he didn't want to be with her. Heartbroken, Sinclair would move in with her parents. In August of 1969, she gave birth to her daughter, who she named Simone. She wrote Vale an angry letter, and two months later, he showed up on her doorstep. She told him to leave and that she never wanted to see him again. She never did. Sharon Hensley 
Sharon Hensley was born on December 20, 1948, growing up in the state capital of Bismarck, North Dakota. She dated football players and belonged to the high school's Demonettes, an award-winning dance team founded by a former Rockette. She graduated in 1966 and attended Bismarck Junior College, where she took classes in dance and acting, performing in a play with her older brother, Frank. In 1967, age 19, Sharon discovered she was pregnant. Wanting to escape her hometown, she followed her brother Frank and other classmates to San Francisco. After arriving, she stayed in a home for single mothers, where she gave birth to a girl named Cherry after the popular Neil Diamond song. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. She told friends she wanted to keep the child but was unable to. Two years later, after leaving for California, Sharon was in jail and her mother, Peggy, headed there with a $5,000 cashier's check to bail her out. When she returned, Sharon wasn't with her. Quote, she said she had lost her daughter, end quote. Her younger brother Brian would later say, quote, she cried almost every night. She was never the same after that. End quote. Meeting Vale. While house sitting in a high rise apartment, Vale would meet his future girlfriend, Sharon. She was 20 and attractive, having even modeled in her teens. They became friends and then started a relationship despite the 10 year age gap. While hitchhiking across California, Bell would confess to Hensley that he had killed Mary, something his son Bill overheard. Because of this, Bill would later go to the police to report his own father for murder. The police at first didn't believe Bill, but after camping out on the front steps, one detective listened. He told the detective that he was hungry, tired of using the drugs his father gave him, that he wanted to go back to school, live like other kids, and that he had overheard his father admit to killing his mother. At a beach along the Merced River, police found his father in Hensley carrying a bag of LSD capsules. Police charged the couple with LSD possession and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Bell received a six-month jail sentence, plus three years probation after pleading guilty to a lesser charge of LSD possession. California police shared their information with Louisiana authorities. Once again, the district attorney and Lake Charles once again passed on prosecuting Bill for murder. Another fatal mistake. Bill returned to Mississippi to live with his grandparents, who then gained full custody. On January 23, 1971, Vale and Sharon showed up in their driveway. Bill thought Vale was there to kill him 
and his grandmother had to reassure him that he was safe. The father and son eventually sat down and had a talk. Vell told Bill that he didn't blame him for the time he spent in prison, but instead blamed Sharon, which the young boy found strange because, quote, she had nothing to do with it, end quote. The family wondered how the couple could even legally be in Mississippi if they were supposed to be on probation in California. They couldn't. After a visit from the sheriff, the two were smuggled out of town and given enough money to get back to the West Coast. In the summer of 1972, the couple appeared unannounced at Sharon's childhood home in Bismarck. The more the family saw the couple, the more horrified they became. Sharon wore a miniskirt with no panties and had armpit hair and leg hair, like a man. She had been losing weight and losing clumps of hair. Her younger brother Brian said it felt like his sister had been brainwashed. If someone asked her a question, quote, either Felix would answer the question for her or she would look at Felix while she was giving the answer, end quote. The couple left then North Dakota and traveled to Mississippi, where they stayed with Vale's family. On the dairy farm the family owned, they helped paint the home. The couple also sunbathed in the nude, drawing the attention of neighbors. Peggy Hensley received a telephone call from Sharon, who said she and Belle were heading to New Orleans and then to Miami to make pornographic films. She believed it was a cry for help as, quote, what daughter tells her mother she's going to do a porno, end quote. Sharon's parents wanted to travel down to get their daughter back, but couldn't. The two did end up shooting pornographic scenes together, but we won't get into any of that. In early 1973, Sharon called and talked of traveling to South America with Vale, where they would eat natural foods and write a book. It was the last conversation the family would ever have with her. Soon after, she would send her final letter. It contained a photo of her holding a pen captioned, Making Travel Notes. It was the last picture ever taken of Sharon Hensley. The Disappearance In March of 1974, Peggy received a letter from Bell claiming he was in West Florida. He wrote that he last saw Sharon about a year before in Key West with an Australian couple that was traveling around the world. All he recalled was the first names of the couple, John and Vanessa, who were talking with Sharon about Quote, island hopping around South America, the West Indies, Hawaii for a while, maybe a couple of years in the Philippines, then India, Egypt, and the Mediterranean islands and coasts. I don't know which of these, if any, they decided on or in what order, end quote. Peggy didn't believe a word of it. In the fall of 1975, Bell's mother wrote to the Hensley family, saying that her son was surprised the family haven't heard from Sharon during that time. Interestingly, Vale told his mother the names of the couple that Sharon left with were Frank and Sally, different names that he had given a year earlier. Vale explained to his mother that before Sharon left, she had burned all of her identification cards, got new IDs, 
and declared that she would become a completely different person. Bill recalled his father mentioning Sharon. Quote, he said she would never bother anyone ever again. End quote. The words upset Bill, who believed his father had just confessed to another murder. Quote, there was not a soul I could tell about it because I had had my experience in court when I was eight. No one would believe me. It would be my word against his, and no one would believe a 13-year-old. End quote. Sharon Campbell While riding a bus to North Mississippi in 1975, Bell sat down next to a 17-year-old Sharon Campbell. Despite being literally twice her age, he commented on how fit she looked, saying, quote, he needed someone like her to keep him fit, end quote. In spite of this, she felt flattered and shared her telephone number with him. Not long after she got home, Vell appeared in a yellow Volkswagen bug. Vell said he wanted Campbell to travel with him, and she told him the only way her parents would allow this was if they got married. On July 24, 1975, they did, honeymooning in Gulf Shores, Alabama. In court years later, she would tell prosecutors that they never consummated the marriage because, quote, he was unable to obtain an erection, end quote. Several weeks later, she went with Vail to visit his relatives in Louisiana. There, she said a niece told her, quote, you probably need to know that he killed his first wife. They arrested him. We all believe that he did it. He drowned her out of a boat, end quote. Campbell didn't believe them, telling herself that he would be in prison if he was a murderer. But as the months passed by, she concluded that he, quote, had no value in the female gender, end quote, and that he hated women. She later traveled with Bell to his parents' home in Montpelier. While there, he was outdoors working on the Volkswagen, and Campbell walked closer without him noticing. He opened a compartment, and she said she saw, quote, sinister, surgical-looking saws of all shapes and sizes in a neat formation, end quote. To her, the sight screamed evil, quote, it scared me. I said, I'm not going anywhere with you, end quote. She left, annulled the marriage, and never looked back. It was likely the best decision she ever made. After the divorce, he would marry a woman named Carolyn in 1977. The relationship would end after he cheated on her with a woman named Alexandria Christensen during a double date. When Carolyn called Bell's mother and asked her if the behavior surprised her, she simply replied, no. After being served the divorce papers, Bell smashed his car into her MGB sports car. A month later, he would call her saying, quote, I love you, end quote. She did not reciprocate. She would later describe Bell as mentally deranged. Alexandria Christensen. Alexandria is the woman Vail cheated on Carolyn with. She eventually got married to him in Mexico after he officially divorced Carolyn. Not long after their marriage, 
she heard that Vail was cheating on her. After a motorcycle accident, he came to rest up at her condo in Costa Mesa, where she confronted him about the cheating. He reportedly got agitated and said, quote, You know my first wife died. End quote. When she replied saying he told her she drowned, Vell shot back, quote, I could have saved her, but I chose not to. End quote. After telling him to leave, she went on to have a shower. While in the shower, Vell attacked her, wrapping his hands around her neck. Hearing her screams, Alexandria's young brother came in, grabbing Vale and forcing him to the ground. Vale then left. Soon after this, she found out she was pregnant. The child was stillborn, and Alexandria was heartbroken. She would later lead important investigators to witnesses that were used in Vale's eventual trial. Annette Craver Born on the 7th of December, 1965, Annette Craver was intelligent and creative. At 15, she was a singer-songwriter, and in her senior year at a private school that specialized in medicine. Her dream was to become a housewife. In the summer of 1981, she and her mother, Mary Rose, greeted people at a friend's yard sale in the Montrose neighborhood in Houston, Texas. They had just returned from vacation in Mexico, and Annette felt heartsick still infatuated with a boy named Adolfo, who was unable to join her in America. Vale meets Annette. While people browsed the sale, Vale pulled up on a motorcycle and spoke with Annette. He was 41 and had done some carpentry work in the area. Quote, When I saw her, I thought, that's going to be my new girlfriend. End quote. He said about the 15-year-old girl, In April 1982, Rose and her daughter invested in a Tulsa home that had a rental cottage behind it. Rose began renovating both. After graduating from high school, Annette joined her mother in Tulsa. Bell appeared a few days later and convinced Annette to leave with him on his motorcycle. They lived off the $500 a month Social Security check that she received from her father's death three years prior. It would be over a year before Mary Rose would see her daughter again. That fall, Annette, who was still 15, would fall pregnant, and Vale would force her to have a painful abortion. Jerry Woodall, reportedly friends with Vale, later recalled an embarrassing scene, where the 42-year-old Vale was in a sleeping bag, having public sex with a 16-year-old Annette, only 20 feet away from him, and his then-wife, Meredith McMacken. Annette grinned and waved at them. Woodall and McMacken did their best to just ignore them. McMacken would later say that Bell had, quote, this coldness and controlling aspect to his personality. Annette was so open and alive, but I think he was just totally dominating her. He would try to convey that he was the higher form of being, At first, I thought maybe he was evolved, but then I realized it was this arrogant act, end quote. Later that summer, 
Police in California would arrest Bale for violating probation a dozen years earlier. Annette telephoned Woodall, who gave her $200. After Bale walked free from prison, he and Annette decided to get married. However, as a 17-year-old, she needed permission. Annette told her mother that she loved Bale, that they were already spiritually married, and that they would travel to Mexico and get married there if she refused. Not wanting to lose her daughter completely, Rose said okay. On October, August 15, 1983, in Bakersfield, California, the couple were wed. After the marriage. Four years after the marriage, Annette turned 18, allowing her to collect more than $98,000 in today's money from life insurance policies on her late father. Accompanied by bail, she withdrew all the money in cash from a San Antonio bank. She bought a flat convertible that Bale liked and paid for his dental work. In April 1984, Rose returned home to find Annette waiting at the door. She told her she wanted to divorce Bale and enroll in college. She talked about Bale's temper, including an incident where he had broken his hand trying to punch his wife. He missed and hit a wall. A few weeks later, Bell showed up. The couple fought constantly, and Bell left after a few days. Mary Rose said that Vale was, quote, insanely jealous, end quote, and would become furious when Annette spoke of her desire to go out with the younger men. She and Annette worked on renovating the two homes after Bell left, enjoying their time together. The two even started a garden together. Annette received a letter from Vale, who vowed their time apart would fuel their love. He wrote to her, quote, After we hung up, I went out to a park and ran and hung and talked with God, and smoked some and shot some pool, and rode with the top down out through the marsh playing Iron Butterfly in Agata de Vida, and bathing every inch of your body, spirit being with love, end quote. He referred to being away from Annette as deprivation jail and to her ego as his jailer. Quote, the idea of her cutting away egos, feeder roots and creating roots between your spirit and the cosmic ground of loving makes me hot for you. My mind is kissing you everywhere, end quote. After that, Bell would return to Annette's life. Rose said, quote, Annette told me, Felix is the wisest person in the world, and I can't make decisions without him, end quote. His influence on Annette had only grown stronger. According to Rose, she even compared Vale to God, a comparison Vale agreed with. After this, the couple angrily insisted that Rose move out and deed the house to Annette. Accompanied by suicidal thoughts brought on Vale's continued control over her daughter. Rose left for California to stay with family and friends, deeding the house to Annette for $7,000. $21,000 in today's money. Before she did. Annette would add Vale to the deed, and a month later had deeded him both homes, leaving him as the sole owner. 
Annette's disappearance. Mere weeks after deeding the house to Belle, the couple told neighbors they were leaving on vacation. When Belle returned in October, he was alone. Belle told a neighbor that Annette had a lot of money with her when he'd left her and that she was likely visiting friends in Denver. Upon learning that Annette hadn't come back with Belle, Mary Rose called him. Quote, he told me that while they were camping, Annette had a sexual dream about being with other men in Mexico and she wanted to go there, end quote. She recalled to an investigative reporter years later, quote, he claimed that the dream made them both realize that she would have her freedom, end quote. The next day, Bell told her he had put Annette on a bus with $50,000, $150,000 in today's money, and didn't elaborate. On October 22, 1984, Rose filed a missing persons report. She told the Tulsa Police Department that each person who spoke with Vale, quote, gets a different story about the amount of money that Annette took with her and where she might be. We all believe that he knows where she is or has done something with her, end quote. On January 22, 1985, Detective Dennis Davis and another officer questioned Bale at his home. This is obscenely late to start questioning him. By this time, Bale had filed for divorce, citing an inability to find her after a diligent search. Davis said her mother, Mary Rose, mentioned her daughter had received more than $90,000 from her father's estate. Bell confirmed this was true, saying the couple had spent much of that money traveling in foreign countries. He said they kept their money in cash because they didn't trust banks and that he had found about $10,000 in cash when he returned home. The next day, Bell called a lawyer who promised to talk with the officers and tell them to leave me alone, as he wrote in his journal. When Davis returned five days later, Vale had a detailed alibi. The couple left Tulsa between noon and 3 p.m. on September 13, 1984, and stayed the night in a hotel in Claremont, Oklahoma. After two nights of camping on the river, Annette woke up and told Vale she had decided to leave him. He took her to the Trailsway bus station in St. Louis and left before she bought the ticket. There is no Trailways bus station in St. Louis, and there has never been a Trailsway bus station in St. Louis. He told the officers that she had told him she was headed for Denver, where she planned to get a fake ID card and leave for Mexico. When asked if he could take a lie detector test, Bale said no. After Davis left, he wrote a letter to Rose. He blamed her for the bad things about Annette, told her that after the couple had returned from Costa Rica, Annette had been, quote, seeing friends and relatives, completing her relationships with them for the purpose of getting ready to drop everything and start over, end quote. He wrote that Annette, quote, disappeared herself from you, end quote because Rose kept imposing her value system on her and said Annette viewed her mother, grandmother, and herself as, quote, zero self-image whores for approval, end quote. He explained the two had no plans to communicate. He did not know where she was and that, 
quote, I also assure you that even if I did know, I would not tell you, end quote. When Rose returned to Tulsa in April 1985, she entered the cottage Annette used to live in, only to find almost all the young woman's belongings were gone, including her clothes and her diary. Inside a Barbie suitcase, Rose found a photograph of her daughter and several of her identification cards. She also located things that Annette had written, including a February 17, 1984, note that contradicted Bell's claim that the couple had spent most of their inheritance on their travel to Mexico and Central American countries. Instead, the note detailed how they used the money to buy the flat, pay off all of Vale's loans, and deposit $36,000 into Louisiana savings. It said that as of that today, they had $41,600, $125,000 in today's money, in cash. Rose shared the information with the police. Detective Davis showed up again, and Bell told Davis the couple divided the money into smaller cashier checks, contradicting his earlier statement that they kept the money in cash. After a while, Davis left, and despite the seemingly obvious suspicious behavior of Bell, closed the missing persons case. After Annette's disappearance... Rose kept calling Bell after this and was finally able to reach him on September 14, 1985. When asked about Annette's whereabouts, he refused to tell her. When asked about Annette's missing clothes, he said he gave them to charity. When asked about the insurance money, Bell told her, quote, that's all she really cared about, end quote. Rose hung up. Two years later, Fed up with the lack of progress in Annette's case, Rose would return to Tulsa. She spent thousands of dollars on private investigators to locate Vale. When that failed, she simply went and found him herself. Tipped off that he was staying at someone's house, she went there with a friend and found him sitting outside. When asked where Annette went, he replied, quote, Mexico, end quote. When asked where in Mexico, he said the two had made a pact to contact each other every five years, contradicting his statement that the two didn't have plans to communicate. Rose didn't believe a word of it. The whole time, Vale never looked up, never stood up, and never looked her in the eye. Beth Field Sometime after this, Bell began dating Beth Field, Soon, the couple had begun arguing, and Belle would call her a whore. During a December 1987 argument, he would strike her so hard he ruptured her eardrum. She told Belle there was no justification for violence, to which he responded, quote, If you quit behaving like a whore, I'll quit hitting you, end quote. In August 1988, Beth received a call from Rose, sharing details about the disappearance of her daughter, Annette. From that point forward, Field said that she began to examine Bell's words more closely, realizing that he had likely murdered her. Four months after the call, he entered her home unannounced. Already drunk, he accused her of 
imagined promiscuity, according to a court order. He slapped her, struck her, and threw her across the bedroom. She asked if Vail was going to kill her, to which Vail replied, quote, It depends on what you tell me. End quote. A judge gave her a protective order requiring Vail to keep his distance. Two weeks later, the sheriff reported that Vail was nowhere to be found. While Field was visiting a mediation center in Texas in 1990, Vail arrived. After composing herself, she told him, quote, There is a part of you that goes off, and it's sick and it's dangerous. End quote. He looked at her and asked, quote, Really? End quote. She said, quote, Yes, really. End quote. This time, the message seemed to go through. Vail left the next day, and with a single exception about five years later, she never saw him again. Mary Rose learns about the other two cases. In the summer of 1991, six years after Annette's disappearance, Rose drove over 2,000 miles to Canyon Lake, Texas, to speak to Sue Jordan, Felix Vale's sister. Jordan said that Vale had told her that Annette wanted to leave, that he took her to a bus station, and that she left with some Mexican men heading for Mexico. Jordan also mentioned that Vale's first wife had drowned, which was news to Rose. Before she left, Jordan also told her, quote, Oh, you know, there was another woman that disappeared. I remember her mother calling my mother for years, checking to see if they'd heard from her. I think her name was Sharon, end quote. After the conversation, Rose sat down at a typewriter, writing every word she could remember. She also called the public library in Lake Charles. The librarian remembered the 1962 drowning of Vale's first wife, Mary Horton. She told Rose that he had taken out life insurance policies on his wife prior to her drowning, and that the insurance companies were suspicious and didn't pay the full value. The librarian made copies of newspaper articles and mailed them to her. After reading them, Rose reached out to Mary's family in Louisiana, speaking to Will Horton. He shared her suspicions about Vail and a copy of the 1971 National Enquirer article made after Vail's son Bill reported him to the police. When she read it, she learned that Sharon's last name was Hensley. In 1994, she read in the newspaper about Dolores Stralo's disappearance from Medford, Oregon, seven years earlier. Police had just arrested her husband, thanks to the work of Detective Terry Newell. She contacted Newell, who helped her find the family of Sharon Hensley. When Rose dialed the Hensley family, Sharon's mother, Peggy, answered. Rose asked if Peggy knew a Felix Vale. Peggy replied with a, quote, you bet I do, end quote. The investigation heats up and cools down. The detective who helped Rose before, Terry Newell, contacted Jim Bell, a national expert in serial killings working for the FBI. When Rose talked about Bell, she felt like she'd finally gotten somewhere. 
He was interested in working on the Vale case if he could swing the time. He still remained busy with active serial killer cases, helping train task forces across the U.S. Vale's son, Bill, told Rose that he was willing to testify as long as authorities provided protection to his family. Both the Tulsa police and the district attorney's office in Lake Charles revived their investigations into Vale, now considered a suspected serial killer. Bell suggested the victim's family gather with authorities at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, to share information on Bell. He was unable to work on the case and left the FBI in 1995. The meeting in Quantico never materialized, and the cases involving Bell grew cold once again. A quick rundown of events. In the fall of 1997, family and friends held a mural for Annette. Diagnosed with esophageal cancer, Bell's son Bill heard from doctors that he didn't have long to live. He's quoted saying, quote, Now I'll get to be with my mom, end quote. Months before passing away in 2009, Bill talked about his father in a recorded interview with his pastor at Grace Church in Overland Park, Kansas. On January 3, 2009, Bill died and Bill wrote in his journal, quote, I feel a large empty hole in my being where his life presence has been for 47 years, end quote, before writing about getting a good haircut. He drove to Kansas and didn't attend his own son's funeral. If he had, he would have heard the recording, with his son detailing how he had overheard his father talk about murdering Bill's mother, Mary. When Bill learned of the recording, he wrote to Pastor Tim Howey, asking for a copy. He blamed his son's statements on false memories, saying, quote, I have not known about it until now and am stunned, end quote. In 2012, while attempting to confront Bell with reporter Jerry Mitchell, whom she had contacted to write about Bell, Rose was stopped by Kay Faulkner, Bell's sister. She told Rose and Mitchell of the recording and urged Mitchell to get a copy of it. She also said that she believed Bell had murdered Mary Horton, Sharon Hensley, and Annette Carver. She gave the reporter Bell's number as well as the numbers of her other brother, Ronnie, and her sister, Beth. Bell didn't answer those calls, so Mitchell left a message. Ronnie promised to speak to his brother on his behalf. Mitchell investigates. Mitchell arrived in Lake Charles and stopped by the Southwestern Louisiana Genealogical and Historical Library, which shared copies from old city directories. He began tracking down people who had lived in the Marie apartment with Felix and Mary. Many described Mary's fear of drowning. A close friend of Bale's, Judson McCain II, described Bell as a ladies' man and insinuated he was a cheater. Quote, Many nights, his car would be home and Mary would be there with the lights on. When Felix was gone... It wasn't because he was trotline fishing, end quote. Another close friend, 
Bob Hodges described Bale's story of Mary falling in the river as horse manure. A college roommate of Mary, Sandra Sudith Pratt, said, quote, Nobody believed it was an accident, end quote. Mitchell shared Mary's autopsy report with pathologist Dr. Michael Badden of New York City, who concluded that foul play had taken place in her death. The report showed large bruises with bleeding into tissues on the left side of her neck, which he said suggested she suffered forceful neck trauma before entering the water. There were hemorrhagic bruises to the right calf and left leg above the knee, which he said were consistent with a struggle before her submersion. But most convincingly of all was the scarf authorities found around her neck that extended four inches into her mouth, which suggested traumatic asphyxia before entering the water. Quote, somebody had to push that scarf into her mouth. She had to have that scarf wedged in her mouth before she was put in the water, end quote. A cousin put Mary's brother, Will Horton, in touch with former detective Rabbit Manuel, who was headed up to the Calicasoo Parish Sheriff's Office's investigation back in 1962. He had never forgotten Mary's death. Quote, Felix's story just didn't add up. The fishing tackle was dry. The trot line was dry. The boat was dry. Even Felix's cigarettes were dry. Despite him telling the deputies, he dove straight in the water to save Mary, end quote. He and Manuel met with Lucky Deluche, who directed an elite task force that investigated homicides. Three young detectives took notes as they talked. Manuel shared details from the case, saying deputies wanted to prosecute, but the district attorney wouldn't let them. Horton shared the autopsy report, Bell's letters, and his belief that Bell was a serial killer. Horton said Deluce replied, quote, This absolutely fits the profile of a serial killer, end quote, to which the other detectives agreed. Shortly afterwards, Deluce left the task force, and for seemingly the hundredth time, grew cold again. After Mitchell posted a story about Bell titled, Gone, and a man named Wesley Turnage contacted him. He told him of a conversation he had had with Vale in 1963 during a car ride. According to Turnage, Vale called Mary a bit and said she thought another child would help solve their marriage problems. He quoted Vale as saying, quote, She wanted to have another kid. I didn't want the one I got. I fixed that sorry bit. She will never have another one, end quote. Mitchell would make another discovery. District Attorney Salter Jr. had ordered that the judge dismiss 882 criminal cases, more than three cases for each working day. Will Horton told Mitchell the original detectives in the case told him that Salter wouldn't allow them to present the evidence they had collected against Bale. That matched the stories Mitchell had heard from grand jurors' families. Horton then contacted District Attorney John DeRoser, who said he would be willing to reopen the case if there was enough evidence. Then came an interesting wrinkle in the story. Finding Vale. He disappeared, 
returning on Labor Day weekend 2012 to sell his property before disappearing again. Luckily, another reader of Gone came to the rescue. He phoned Mitchell, telling him where Vale was, Canyon Lake, Texas. Mitchell then contacted Enzo Yaksik, founder of the Serial Homicide Expertise and Information Sharing Collaborative. Yaksik then contacted Armin Showalter, acting chief of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, which specialized in serial homicide investigations. Yaksik shared a copy of Gone with Showalter, who in turn called Calicasu Parish Deputy Randy Curtis, now taking on the Vail case. Curtis phoned Mitchell to find out where Vail was. A few days later, he called back to say the FBI had discovered Vail purchased property at 737 Shady View Drive in Canyon Lake. On January 18, 2013, Curtis decided to confront Vail. He found him at the address, living in a storage shed. Horace said he read Vail as rights before asking him about the death and disappearances of the women. Vail refused to say anything, accusing families in the Clarion Ledger, where Gone was published, of lying about him. The whole time, Vail couldn't stop smirking. Will Horton gave Mitchell the number of his cousin, who was a caretaker for 90-year-old Isaac Abshire Jr. When Mitchell sat down with the man, he shared a haunting story. Abshire had worked with Vale and offered him a room to rent out. Once Vale and Mary were married, Vale had moved out. Abshire viewed himself as a big brother to Mary, calling her a, quote, sweet little girl. End quote. After the marriage, Bale had become angry at work, talking about how ugly his wife was when she was pregnant and how he didn't like his baby. On the Friday before she was killed, the couple visited Abshire, bringing Bill, who was still an infant. Mary privately asked Abshire if he thought Bale could take her baby away. Two days later, Mary was dead. Abshire and two other workers went out the next day to drag the river. The next morning, October 30th, 1962, he returned with one of them, Jimmy May, to continue dragging. Abshire said while they were talking, quote, something popped up. A guy with binoculars asked, does she have blonde hair? I said, yes, that's her, end quote. They recovered the body, and Abshire could never forget what he saw. Her body was rigid, and a scarf was wrapped around her neck before going into her mouth. Blood boiled on the boat, everyone voicing the same opinion. Vale had killed Mary. Abshire had kept photos from that day for over 50 years. He said he had given them to Deputy Curtis as well as a copy of the 1962 Sheriff's Report which listed 15 points suggesting Bell's guilt. Despite being behind on major bills, Bell had managed to pay an entire year's premiums in advance for a $50,000, or $150,000 in today's time, life insurance policy on his wife. 
He had a second life insurance policy on her for $8,000, $24,000 in today's money, which promised to pay double if she died by accident. It was almost as if he knew she was about to die. Deputies have reported witnesses claims that Bale had told them he didn't love his wife, that she looked stupid and vulgar, and that he had had sexual relations with multiple women and at least one man. Bell told deputies that his wife was wearing an off-white leather jacket when she went into the water, but she wasn't wearing the jacket when her body was recovered. Inside his boat, deputies found two life preservers. Mary had not been wearing one, despite her fear of drowning. As for the trot line, the two were supposedly running, Deputies found it still inside Vale's tackle box. Most witnesses the deputies had spoken to felt that Vale was capable of killing his wife. When asked if he believed Vale killed his wife, Abshire said, quote, Oh my God, yes. End quote. The Chase and the Final Clues Ever since Vale had sold his Mississippi property, Mary Rose had wondered if he would eventually sell the Tulsa property, the one she and Annette had lived in. He did. Vale sold it for $149,000. Rose asked the question on the mind of everyone investigating. Quote, What is he going to do with all that money? He could be running. End quote. On April 30th, Mitchell got a call saying that Vale had left Texas. He was pulled over by police in Columbus, Mississippi, after hopping the fence of his now-dead brother, Ronnie's property. Curtis told Mitchell that the Columbus police were sending him a photo of Vale and the white pickup truck he was pulled over in. He once again warned Mitchell that Vale could be running. Vale's sister called again saying she heard her brother was heading to Montpelier. She wondered if he was driving to the home of possible witness Wesley Turnage. Mitchell called Turnage to let him know that Vale might be headed his way. Turnage replied, quote, If he sets foot on my property, there won't be no trial, end quote. He called Mitchell back later, saying no one in Montpelier had seen Vale. Private investigator Gina Frenzel, who had questioned Vale herself, including pretending to be his girlfriend, called Mitchell with good news. Vale had contacted her and told her he was back in Canyon Lake. Mitchell informed Curtis. On May 17, 2012, authorities arrested Felix Vale for the murder of his wife, Mary Horton. In telephone calls from the jail in Lake Charles, he shared his explanation of what happened on the night of October 28, 1962, when Mary died. He referred to his first wife as a coon-ass lady, saying she was half-kneeling on his feet when she, quote, saw one of the float buckets that were on the line, end quote. He said the boat was, quote, going real slow along the edge of the bank when the boat hit a stump and it dumped her right out, end quote. Bell said he shut off the motor and dove in, quote, where she had plopped in the water. I mean nothing 
the river had sucked her right in, end quote. He said he, quote, drove around until I was exhausted and came in immediately to the police station in town and reported the accident, and that was it, end quote. The story differed greatly from his story in 1962, when he said his wife was sitting on top of a boat seat when she fell out, not that she was kneeling on his feet. Back then, he said nothing about hitting a stump, just swerving to miss it. It also differed from the story he had told his son, where a wave from another boat had dumped Mary out. Bell told Frentel that the case, quote, has been an avalanche coming down the mountain all that time, waiting to hit my head, and it finally has, end quote. He blamed his families and Mitchell, quote, an evil, shrimpy reporter, end quote, for what had happened, calling the changes fabricated and insisting that, quote, a large amount of money, hate, and political ambitions are behind them, end quote. At Bell's request, Frenzel returned his truck to his home and went inside to take care of a few tasks. While there, she spent 16 hours photographing all of his journals, more than 2,400 pages. She also photographed letters, documents, photographs, and business cards, some dating back to the 1960s. She found a collection of women's jewelry, old buttons, pens, and even a glass dildo. Disturbingly, if at this point unsurprisingly, she found a photograph of a naked three-year-old girl. Frenzel later spoke with the girl, now a woman. The journals revealed that Vale had stalked her for years. Frenzel discovered the birth certificate of Annette Craver, who had used it for previous trips to Mexico. Mitchell and Frenzel poured through the journals she had photographed. They noticed gaps in them that led them to believe Bell had ripped pages out, including times when he should have been with Sharon and Annette. His journals were dominated by sex, dreams of sex, and reflected an obsession with children. In a March 27, 1986 entry, Bell wrote about the visit of a woman and her daughters in his home. Quote, The little girls were delicious, we massaged some, hugged and kissed some, and it was midnight and time for them to go, end quote. On April 29, 1992, Bell walked into the Walmart in West Point, and as he wrote in his journal, quote, a one-year-old white girl looked in my eyes, loving me like there was no age difference between us, end quote. When Mitchell interviewed Kurt Germany, a co-worker of Bell in 1977. He said that Bell attracted women wherever he went, and that Bell had told him that the best sexual encounters of his life were with two- or three-year-old girls. It was at that time that Alexandria Christensen, Bell's ex-wife, called Mitchell and told him her story. She also put him in contact with Bruce Biedebach, the man she had been on a date with when she left with Vale. Biedebach would tell Mitchell that during a party in 1965 that turned into a boast fest, Vale had boasted about something he had done that no one else had done. Killed his wife. 
He told the men at the party that he had held his wife's head underwater until she drowned. Biedebach then put Mitchell in contact with Rob Fermont, who had bicycled around California with Vale when he was 13. He said that while riding with Vale, he had told him that he hit his wife on the head and drowned her. Fremont never rode with him again after that. With as much evidence as they could possibly gather, the case went to trial. The Trial Bell's trial began on August 8, 2016. District Attorney John DeRoser laid out the evidence clearly. He spoke of the evidence against Bale about Mary's murder on October 28, 1962. He spoke about Bell swearing to Sharon Hensley's mother that she wanted to start a new life in 1974. He spoke about his letters to Mary Rose, telling her he wouldn't tell her where her daughter Annette was, quote, even if he knew, end quote. Bell smirked at that one. Finally, he spoke to the jurors. Quote, Mary Horton Bell is gone. Sharon Hensley is gone, end quote. DeRoser said, quote, and Annette Craver Vale is gone, end quote. Quote, you're going to write the last chapter, and it's simply going to read, and justice was finally done. William Felix Vale, guilty as charged, end quote. Prosecutors called all three families to testify. Will Horton told jurors of his sister, quote, Mary was the kind of person you would want as a friend, end quote. He broke while talking about visiting his nephew after her death in 1962. Quote, I just wanted Bill to know how much his mother loved him, end quote. Brian Hensley told jurors that he last saw his sister, Sharon, with Vail before the pair left Bismarck, North Dakota in 1972. Other than a telephone call and letter in the months that followed, he said no one had seen or heard from her since. When Mary Rose took the stand, Vail bowed his head. This was the woman who had been working for 32 long years to bring him into court. This was the mother who had waited 32 years for this moment. She called Annette, quote, a huge light in my life. We were always loving toward each other, end quote. She testified that Vale ran off with her daughter on his motorcycle and married her. She testified that Annette, who inherited nearly $100,000 and received two homes, disappeared weeks after deeding the homes to Vale. Wesley Turnage, Rob Fermont, and Bruce Biedebach swore under oath that Bell said he killed his first wife. Biedebach said he asked Bell if Mary was a bit, to which Bell had said yes. Bell laughed in court as he told the story. The current coroner, forensic pathologist Dr. Terry Welk, testified that in most drownings, the body comes up in a, quote, dead person's float, end quote with the back of the head surfacing first and the limbs hanging down in the water. After sharing a series of pictures to show it, he showed the court two black and white photographs of Mary Horton when her body was recovered on October 30, 1962, 
less than two days after, she reportedly drowned. Her body was stiff, with her hands over her chest as if she were in a coffin. They also saw the videotaped testimony of Isaac Apshire Jr., who had died in 2014. He said her body was stiff when it surfaced, either sideways or face up when she bobbed up in the Kalakasu River. That testimony helped contribute to Welt's homicide conclusion. So did the unbroken grease-like strain across her Chai Omega sweatshirt, which he believed could have come from a tarp covering her. Welt concluded Mary was dead and stiff before her body went into the water, explaining why rigor had set in. Testimony was heard of Vale not paying for his own wife's funeral, despite having made thousands from her life insurance. The verdict. The jury didn't even take half an hour to reach their verdict. William Felix Vale Sr. was unanimously found guilty of murdering Mary Horton. He was sentenced to life in prison. After the verdict, the prosecutor also revealed that the FBI had found out that Vale had molested a child over 30 years ago. They were unable to put him on trial for it as the statute of limitations had passed. Finally, nearly 54 years after she was murdered, Mary Horton had found justice. Finally, 42 years after her disappearance, Sharon Hensley had found justice. And Annette Craver, with the help of her mother Mary Rose's tireless efforts, had found justice after 32 years. And to end this story, dear listeners, my heart goes out to all the families and friends affected by this evil, cruel bastard of a man. May all three women rest in peace. Louisiana Girl Disappears Into Thin Air Savannah Hell 22 white female goes missing in Shreveport, Louisiana. This is the only disappearance that's kept me up at night. Any tips I'm sure will help this family so much. I don't want this girl to be just another forgotten case. Here are the facts and a timeline regarding Savannah's case. On the night and early morning of the 3rd and 4th of May 2022, Miss Hale and her boyfriend were at Fatty Arbuckles located at 450 Clyde Fant Parkway in Shreveport, Louisiana. They left Fatty Arbuckles approximately 5.4 miles from her boyfriend's grandparents' home where they were staying. May 4, 2022. At some point in the early morning hours, Savannah leaves the house where she was staying via Google tracking Savannah travels back and forth several times from the house to city center area, no particular location. Google tracking stops at Brookshire's at 3000 North Market Street, number 140, Shreveport, Louisiana, 71107. 6.06 a.m. Savannah was seen on surveillance video from soap opera adjacent to the Chevron at 3101 North Market Street, Shreveport, Louisiana, 71107. Savannah purchased unknown items. 
6.08 a.m. Savannah tries to call her sister. Savannah's sister was asleep and missed the phone call. Savannah leaves her sister a voicemail and does not seem to be in any distress. 7.03 a.m. Savannah was seen in her vehicle alone at Louisiana Tower Parking Garage at 333 Travis Street, Shreveport, Louisiana, 71101. This was confirmed by employees of the parking garage. 8.03 a.m. Savannah's sister attempts to contact Savannah, but with no luck. 9.30 to 10 a.m. She then goes to the apartment. Savannah is not at the residence, and her boyfriend does not know where Savannah is or when she left. 11 a.m. Savannah's sister contacts Shreveport Police Department. 1.30 to 2 p.m. Police report was filed. Facts of the case. Everyone that is involved with the case has been questioned and currently ruled out by SPD. Savannah's phone was no longer used at some point after 6.08 a.m., the morning of May 4, 2022. The police have Savannah's cell phone records. Savannah's last known location was at Louisiana Tower Parking Garage at 333 Travis Street, Shreveport, Louisiana, 71101. Savannah was alone in her vehicle when she departed the garage. The direction of travel is unknown. With some technology used by law enforcement, we know that Savannah's vehicle did not travel on any major highway or interstate since May 4, 2022. Accessible waterways were searched by various volunteers. The cameras mounted on traffic lights in Shreveport are violation cameras and will only record a vehicle when a traffic violation has occurred. This case is still ongoing. And that, dear listeners, is the end of these Unsolved Cases, Volume 5. My apologies if any of these stories were disturbing to you. I do like to read these stories as I would like everyone to realize how evil people really are. With that being said, if you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you have been interested in these stories. Until next time. I'll read to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.